Illinois, England, a team of firemen battled for an hour to free a man whose wife had tossed him into the kitchen sink. The bottom of Barry Leaguer had been jammed between the faucets and he couldn't get out. Rubbing his uh, aching <coughs> hip bones to soothe the grip of the metal spouts, Leaguer explained that he tangled with his uh, 227-pound wife, Barbara, after he broke a window playing soccer with his four-year-old son, Clarence. Oh, well, Barbara took the ball and locked it in the cellar, and as a joke, I grabbed her so well, Clarence could get the ball back, but she just grabbed me around the neck and, and took me in a fireman's lip over her shoulder and plonked me in a sink bottom first. It, it went right down there. Neither neighbors, no wife. She said she was helpless with laughter, could free him. So Mrs. Leaguer finally stifled her loud giggles and called the fire brigade. You, know what you might say, said the rueful Leaguer, it was a painful, embarrassing experience. So tonight, my fellow travelers along the great yellow brick road of life, as you wheel your pillow pad, attempting to scour away the evil, the incessant, encroaching evil of our time on Earth, we can only but pause and give consideration and look deeply into the well of our country and say, whither goest thou, O mankind, climbing as you are the eternal vast pyramid of time, reaching constantly, endlessly for that perfection that lies just beyond the next stuttering silver-lined cloud.
little prayer, folks. Uh, <clears throat> Maria, lad, did you like that? How about how about uh, how about that silver-haired daddy of mine? Yeah, yeah it's not bad. Uh, oh, by the way, speaking of that uh, silver-haired daddy of mine, I have a little note here. I have to now. I, I, I once in a while, I just just can't help it. I just you know, very nervous. I have a note here in the studio. Somebody left me some egg rolls. Thank you. This good old Earl. You know, he left me some egg rolls. Earl and Chuck. These are your egg rolls. The duck sauce is in the wastebasket. The duck sauce is in the wastebasket. So. Radio marches on. <laughs> I'll tell you. And it's, uh, he signs it in Chinese. I can't read it to you on the air. It's a dialect that I'm sure you wouldn't understand. And also he says some things that he shouldn't have said. Maria Lena, you're the answer to my dreams. May I please? Please, if you will. All right, folks, I want you to just gather around the old fireplace now. No, no, you're playing the wrong one. I said silver-haired daddy. I want you to look up silver-haired daddy. You can't just come on there with that Maria Lane again. He's on there. No, well, then you play something else. Use your own imagination. look on the other side. There's two sides to every record now. You know, they're making them that way now. They, I know you go back to the days when they had them round things. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to push you too close to the edge, but, but you see, every once in a while, I, I got to do that. I got to do that because one day I was, I was staying in this hotel out there. Now, maybe you don't know this, but I'm staying in this hotel. You, Lee, come on. Now, don't quit reading all. Just put any one of mine. I know you're leaving me hung up. Is it on? Okay. I'm in this hotel, see? And I'm I'm uh, sitting there, and I think it was on the Sunset Boulevard. You know? Overlooking the valley there. Out on the west coast. And I don't know. It's just kind of warm. and kind of warm and nice. I'm sitting in this hotel room and, and uh, with this friend of mine. And uh, by God, the phone rings and, and up comes, up comes. And, and, and the hotel, by the way, has got ashtrays. And uh, I'm going to ask you a question. Here's a trivia question. We'll give you a real trivia question. You want a trivia question? Uh, ashtrays. And, uh, and the ashtrays set on them the following slogan. Where a friend's a friend. That's what the ashtray said. Now, now, what hotel is that? I'll give you a clue. It wasn't Howard Johnson's. It was not Holiday Inn. Well, all right. It was one of those, one of those curious moments in time. See, I got this ashtray, and I go out on the, on the little balcony. I'm looking out over the smog of, of, uh, of, of the valley rising like a great yellow zeppelin into the area. You know, you could just see it rising on all sides. And down below me, the, the strip was just getting ready to go into full swing. I mean, you can just feel the vibrancy. And when the strip is going into full swing, for those of you who have never been uh, involved at all in the showbiz world out in Los Angeles, you just don't know what, what's coming off. I mean, it's, it's happening. And I look down there, seeing down below me is a, is, a, is a strip joint, of which there are hundreds, you know, stretching along the way there. And right next to the strip joint is a retirement hotel. It's kind of nice. 
Yeah, and all these nice people are sitting in there, and uh, the ladies with the blue hair and these elderly gentlemen are all sitting in the in the lobby of this other hotel. It's a retirement hotel, and next to them is the strip joint. And the strip joint had a fantastic show that all the uh, all the strippers had taken political names. A topless, bottomless, total strip, it said. And, uh, for example, Barry Goldwater was appearing there. It's spelling it B-A-R-I, Goldwater. And it was a... There was a, and, and the second headliner was with Dickie Nixon, D-I-K-K-I, Nixon. And it said, The Three Trishes. Well, I want to tell you, it was an exciting thing. I'm sitting there uh, looking out over the valley with the smog rising. I knew that I was in the heartland of, of it all, you know. And, uh, and I could hear the, the uh, PA system, you know, the Muzak going there. And the Muzak is, is, is playing these songs. He's drifting in and out of the just drifting in and out of the corridors there, see. And I picked up my, my old mouth out. Yeah, when you swallow come back to Capistrano. When you swallow Yeah, baby. You know, as we sit here down around the old campfire, eating this old, this old slum gullion from the chuck wagon, sit down here, listen to the sound of them doggies out there wandering around under the moonlight. We can hear the creaking of the saddles. We know that we're right here where a friend's a friend by God, and there ain't no discouraging words ever heard out here. And I know that, uh, I know that when that sun comes up and the swallows come back from Capistrano, yep, when Ronnie McDonald comes home from the big corral up there in the sky, my God, I'll be sitting here, baby, just a wig for you. And I'd like to sing a little song for you. And when the swallows, when you whisper, oh, my darling, playing? 
Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's scary. That's a fact. And uh, <laughs> I'm not putting it down. It's just, it's just that, that nothing much has really changed out there in the big, deep woods. And I had the radio on, and I hear the song, you know, just a coming out of there. It's drifting out there. I said, by God, no, I can tell that off-key fiddler squeaking away. Who is it, Jewett? Coming the rocky. I'll be Yes, and for the next five minutes, we'll have a salute to the three sons. And, uh, hey, we're going to be back right away. We've got a note here. Yeah, this is WOR New York. And we're going to take a break right now. And we're going to go direct and live to Florida for re- a big report on the nation's second presidential primary. And here he is, WOR's Lester Smith. What's happening, Les? A campaign that has swept every nook and corner of this big, broad state of Florida has swept Alabama's Governor George Wallace far out front in the 11-man race in the Democratic presidential primary held here in Florida today. Of course, it must be pointed out immediately that there was one specific single major issue on which this whole campaign centered, and it is not the kind of issue which conceivably would be the only one in other states. But by taking the problem and the question of the busing of school children to achieve racial integration, which he so vehemently opposes, and which struck so firm a note amongst so many voters here in the state of Florida, the governor of Alabama would now 91% of Florida's votes tally, 2,595 of 2,841 precincts. George Wallace has achieved 43% of the vote. And as we mentioned before, this is anywhere between 8 and 10% more than had been anticipated, even amongst those who conceded that Wallace was going to be the number one man in this 11-man field. He has 477,184 votes, 43%. In second place, and it is not really a very good second place, but it is second place, is Senator Hubert Humphrey, who was the 1968 Democratic presidential nominee with 17% of the vote, but not quite 192,000 votes. A surprise move in the third place has come from Senator Henry Jackson of the state of Washington, uh, who was the sort of conservative amongst the other Democrats uh, entered in this primary and uh, who gained a great deal of support over the past few weeks from those Democrats who approved pretty much of what Mr. Wallace was saying, or at least to a certain degree, but did not want to vote for Wallace, wanted to stay in a Democratic candidate. And since Jackson strongly opposes the concept of busing just to achieve integration, he was the beneficiary of those votes. The big surprise and the major disappointment of the primary from the standpoint of any candidate has been Senator Edmund Muskie of Maine, who at this stage, with 91% of the vote tallied and better than a million and a half votes counted, still has not yet achieved 100,000 votes. He has 9% of the vote with 98,129 votes. The only other contest of any nature, and it really isn't much of a contest, is what's going on for fifth and sixth place between New York's Mayor John Lindsay and uh, Senator George McGovern of South Dakota. Lindsay now has uh, edge over McGovern for fifth place with 73,000 to 66,000 for McGovern. Uh, Lindsay a little better than 6% of the vote, uh, almost 7%. Uh, McGovern just about 6%. But there again, uh, what do you do with 6% of the vote uh, in a contest such as this? It must be said, of course, uh, that McGovern and Lindsay in this kind of a campaign with this one single issue uh, certainly, uh, as the out, most outspoken liberals in the contest, uh, 
were not going to do anywhere near or remotely as well as they might have done uh, had the busing issue not been the single most important. Oh, the Republicans, of course, as we've said all night long, it's just uh, it's just a, a, an exercise in counting ballots. President Nixon with 87 percent, uh, Congressman Ashbrook with 9 percent, and Congressman McCloskey, who has withdrawn from the race but whose name is still on the ballot, has 4 percent. We do feel, however, that again, we will bring you up to date on those three... Uh, very important so-called uh, straw ballots on the uh, on the voting ballot today. Uh, the one which uh, calls for a constitutional amendment which would prohibit busing to achieve racial integration and which would mandate and guarantee the right of school children to remain in schools in their own neighborhoods, schools of their own choosing. And by the same token, the so-called equal education straw ballot proposal uh, which calls for a system of equal education for all children uh, regardless of race, color, or creed, or uh, residence in any given community. In addition to which, there is also the school prayer uh, uh, proposal, uh, which calls for a constitution, United States constitutional amendment, uh, to permit prayer in public schools. Bear in mind that there is nothing official or binding about these proposals. They are not referenda. They are simply proposals, straw ballot tests of the sentiment uh, of the voters of this state. But you can uh, easily see what that sentiment is. Again, uh, let's go now to 92% of the vote. Wallace continues with 43%. Humphrey, 17. Jackson, 14. Muskie, 9%. Uh, Lindsay still has uh, not quite 7, and McGovern uh, just about 6%. Lester Smith reporting from WOR Primary Election Headquarters in Miami. Back now to WOR New York. And thank you, Les. Uh, I think he'll be back shortly, won't he? Uh, sometime during the uh, 11 o'clock news. Yeah, there's Lester Smith reporting from Florida. Live down there. What other weather is down there? Did he say it was great? Did Lester say it on the... <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, I'm just curious. Uh, he's down there, and it's it's a real rotten night here in New York. Uh, for any of you who uh, know anything about the weather around this area, wow, <laughs> it's mean then. Uh, you know, it's just a typical slushy, rotten, mean night. Which, I, you know, I, I like a little meanness in life. I, I think if a guy has got no meanness in his life, he ain't got no glands. Now, you're looking at a very mean person, personally, deep inside. I ain't cuddly and lovable, right, George? You better know it, man. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Speaking of, of uh, the cuddly, lovable, uh, once in a while, uh, when you... When you uh, have you ever have you ever seen you know a friend of yours who's 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 uh, uh, how many of you I, I I doubt whether many of you really do have friends who are actors uh, and and uh, since you know my world is showbiz I have a lot of friends who are and it's fascinating to me to see how many people will 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 uh, confuse the actor with the role he plays that's true I mean you know a lot of guys probably think that the the late Jimmy Dean really was you know a teenage uh, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's just the way it is. It, that's that's the whole essence, I suppose, of acting. I imagine it's a dream. But the other day, I was I was uh, I read a piece on a friend of mine who is really gone. I mean, he's really all of a sudden made it, you know, in a giant way. And I know him very well. And I'm curious whether you'd like to know something about how he really is. You know who I'm talking about? All right, I'm talking about Archie Bunker. I'm talking about Carol O'Connor, who's an old personal friend of mine from way back when he was uh, trying to break out of acting. He was didn't didn't want to be an actor, and the uh, Carol is very different from the character that you see on the screen. He's about as different as he can conceivably be. 
In fact, Carol is 90, I would say a good 180% the opposite of the character uh, of, of uh, Archie Bunker. You're curious. And the first uh, the first night, I, I remember uh, I, knew, I, I met Carol, oh, a long time ago. I mean, it was, it was back in the late 50s, a long time ago, as, as far as acting is concerned in the whole career world. And uh, do you want to hear something about Carol? Well, well, well Carol, how I got to know him, an interesting kind of side issue, but not really that important. Uh, uh, we, I was doing uh, myself at that time. I was doing a lot of acting in town, and uh, I'd uh, done some writing for a couple of Broadway reviews, and uh, that were done in New York. And I, I was doing some writing at the time. I was writing a great deal for the Village Voice. Well, uh, I was uh, at the Actors Studio one day, which is a, you know what the Actors Studio is, and I was. Uh, I was involved in the studio for a long time, and I uh, met this guy, and he's, uh, he, you know, I just, he looks like Archie Bunker looks now, you know, this is the way he looks, you know, this is, a, this is his look. So uh, we got talking, we went out and had coffee and had some mutual friends, and we got to, you know, we got talking at a great length, and we began to see each other a lot, you know, just as friends, and, and at the time, Carol was living uh, in, a, in a place on 6th Avenue, he was living on 6th Avenue, uh, right near, and I was living not too far uptown from there, but he was living on 6th Avenue, right around 49th Street, up above one of these crummy little joke shops where they sell, you know, where they sell uh, plastic, uh, uh, plastic cigar butts that you stick under your friend's feet, you know, and sneezing powder and all junk like that. It was a miserable bar next to it, and a crummy uh, discount electronic shop next to that. And uh, every five minutes, sirens were going by. And uh, Carol was living in this loft up above there, and his uh, he has this interesting wife, and uh, his wife reminds me very much of Marjorie Maine. Uh, she's yeah, she's got this strange sense of humor, and she's tall and angular, and so I would go over there all the time. You know, they'd say, well, you got to have a home cooked dinner, so I would come over to to uh, Carol's place. Well, they had this loft. Well, it didn't have a John in it, and it was a loft. See, they lived in this loft. So any time you needed a John or you wanted to, you know, do anything like that, you had to run down to the bar. So, um, <laughs> well, I didn't have a John. That's all I was doing, see. And it was illegal, see. He was living in this place where you weren't supposed to live in. It was a, it was a loft, but it was not supposed to be for residential use. It was supposed to be for, like, storehouse or, or maybe a... Uh, maybe a rehearsal hall or something. Not even that. It was just supposed to. It wasn't fit. It was, wasn't approved for residential living. But here he was in there. See, so one night uh, I came over there and he said, "Look, he says you got to come over." He said, "I'm, I'm really, really need some help." So I said, "What is it?" Well, he had gotten his John somewhere, and uh, so so he and myself and a couple of other guys spent a, a spectacular weekend trying to install this thing. <laughs> Well, you want to hear what it's really like. You're hearing what it's, it's very funny. See, so we were struggling, away, really struggling away, putting this thing up there. And then he had, he got himself a, a shower stall that he got somewhere, and it was a used shower stall. And and I remember we, we we got it all hooked up. See, we thought we had it all hooked up. Well, we we went downstairs to the to the basement of this building where where you turn the water on. See, he had the pipes were in there, but there was no 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 fixture. See, so we turned the water on. And uh, we're down there turning on. We had a flashlight. It was dark down there. We're turning on this water, and uh, 
And we started up these dingy little stairs. And all of a sudden, we hear a lot of yelling. And people are screaming. And, 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 and doors are flying open. And apparently, <laughs> this thing, this thing, the water is flying down the stairs now. See, what the, remember, we're amateur plumbers. So uh, we, we rushed upstream. And the, we're, we're, we're struggling to stem the fantastic tide because we can just see what would happen, you know, with, when a giant tidal wave hits the White Rose Bar down below there, see? And all these uh, serious drinkers are sitting there, and all of a sudden they're washed out to sea. So we, <laughs> we struggle upstairs, and, 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 and uh, we, go, we got, he takes out, you know, we're running around trying to do something with the water. It's squirting out all over the place. So we take, uh, we take old, old overalls and everything else, and we're stuffing it down in there trying to stop the water. And nobody, this is how, how uh, amateur we are. Nobody thought they'd run down and turn it off. See, we're just running around, and the water's flying. And all of a sudden, his wife says, you stupid guys, why don't you turn the water off? <laughs> With that, we both looked at each other. Yeah, that's right. So we, we rushed down, and we, we're turning the water off. <laughs> we came back upstairs, and here's this place. It's a wash now, see. It's a, it's a wash. And, and remember, I was over there. I was supposed to have dinner with them. See, here we are now. So the water is all over the place. See, and they had this little table that they had they'd gotten somewhere. This is a, a true acting, New York acting story. See, that little table, and the water's up to our knees. So we didn't know what this was. Very embarrassing. So we, we all sat around there, and, and we're having this elegant dinner, which his wife had fixed. And we're, we're eating the spaghetti, you know, and drinking the cheap wine, and trying to pretend that we weren't knee-deep. In used water, which was blowing <laughs> everybody sitting there talking very intellectually, and we're discussing life and the future of mankind, and uh, and all the while the water kept going, boom, boom, you could hear it dripping down, and and and, and in the middle of the meal, it's funny, because the, uh, there's a certain times, you know, when when things just happen, just get so completely out of control that in the middle of the meal, now the, the spaghetti is out and and the spaghetti sauce. And uh, you know, I must point out, uh, it is unnecessary to point it out, I suppose, that, that Carol was very poor at the time. And uh, <laughs> as is the case of often, it happens to most every actor in New York at one time or another. And I'll tell you this, I wasn't hitting the big scratch either. So uh, we're eating the spaghetti when all of a sudden, behind us in the dark, see, they only had two light bulbs hanging from the ceiling in this beautiful loft. When all of a sudden behind us, we hear... <coughs> shower stall fell over. We put the shower stall up, see, and, and we had forgotten that not only was the water flying out of the jump, but it had been squirting out of the shower stall. It was half full of water. Well, the shower stall fell over. It was one of these, these uh, you know, sort of a translucent type, see, it was boom, and the water pours out of it. It was like the Johnstown flood, see, or well, obviously, you know, another eight inches of water on the floor. With all the used bars of Life Boy floating around and everything else, it was just a you know fantastic evening. So we're sitting amid all this this uh, this <laughs> squalor and stuff. <laughs> well, you got to remember that the people in showbiz, and you better believe it, I'm in showbiz. The people in showbiz that tend to uh, rise above their world. Yes, they do. They they that's one thing about showbiz people. They live largely in a world of their own creation. That's a Kind of a fantasy world. So, so uh, we we finished the meal. See, and the water now is lapping at our knees. So we finished the the meal, and and uh, we're going to have this evening anyway, in spite of all this. See, so they they had this old old couch they got from the Salvation Army or something. It's old, it's sodden. See, 
So we both we both squat on a couch, and and uh, his wife Nancy comes over, and she brings out the uh, she brings out after dinner mints, and uh, we had our after dinner mints, and we had the this this after dinner brandy, and with that Carol brings out his play he's writing. Well, now that at that point Carol was was deeply involved in playwriting. He was going to be a great playwright, and uh, I'm reading this play, and uh, it's a uh, very turgid. And, uh, <laughs> well, you could see why Carol stuck to acting. But, uh, anyway, it was a very involved play that, that involved good and evil and the struggle of, uh, of, uh, you know, man's soul. And it was, it was a, it was a kind of paraphrasing of Faust. I mean, oh, you know, the kind of play that, uh, that it would take a cast of thousands and, and a, an unlimited budget and a suicidal producer to put on. Uh, and so I'm, <laughs> I'm reading the play and the water's lapping around. At, at uh, Carol, uh, of course, at this point we're we're very old friends. At this point, I've known I'd known Carol a couple of years, and and uh, and so uh, Carol, uh, among other things, uh, as an actor, uh, they don't he doesn't say much about it. I don't know why, but he doesn't. That Carol's one of the few guys who was ever accepted in the Abbey Theater, uh, playing Irish roles as an American. Yes, he's uh, he, yeah he was a student. He went to, he went to Trinity College in Dublin. And uh, this is an elegant, uh, not elegant, but a highly respected uh, uh, institute. That's that's really not the that. Well, that's the, you cannot compare it to the Indianapolis School of Pyrotechnics and Chiropractics. This is a, this is a, this is quite a <laughs> quite an institution. So Carol, Carol is a you know full fledged uh, uh, a full fledged uh, James Joyceian, and and so we're sitting there having a, a giant rattling argument about James Joyce then at that point about. Uh, whether uh, you know ramifications of Joyce's stream of consciousness writing versus uh, man's real uh, chaotic uh, thought processes, as represented by Samuel Beckett, and uh, whether or not Beckett as a secretary influenced James Joyce, or whether Joyce, oh, it was fantastic. When all of a sudden we hear these feet going dum 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 dum, and the door slams open, and here's this angry-looking bartender or something. He says, "What the hell is going on up here? He's the one that's dripping down behind the bar." <laughs> I was a scene right out of Archie Bunker, you might say. See, and, 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 except that the, here we're all sitting there with the candles flickering, saying, and, and uh, the, the the shower stall laying over on its side, and the water, you know, lashing up around our feet, and we're we're sitting here deeply immersed in in James Joyce, and and this guy comes roaring in, and he stands in the doorway. He took a look at us and he says, Oh, what is it? Put a in it! Hey, Archie! He yells down the stairs, you know, Hey, Archie, there's a bunch of beatniks up here! And, <laughs> and, 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 and I remember Carol, Carol looking at me and saying he had this look of infinite sadness and weariness, like here we are, upholders of the great world of artistic integrity, and we're surrounded by the, the Philistines, and that, that uh, it's, <laughs> it's the eternal battle. So finally, Nancy comes over and says, "What do you say? What do you say? We go down to the Howard Johnson or a chock full of nuts or someplace? Get out of here!" And, and so we, we we looked at our pockets, see how much money we had. So we finally decided to go where we could, what we could really afford. We finally went down there. We went down to to the H and H, and uh, down there on Broadway, you know, in the forties there. And so we carried on our intellectual discussion amid all these, uh, you know, the late night habitués of the H and H. Uh, sitting around, or half of them asleep with their head on the table, you know, snoring away. <laughs> and so, so I, I, uh, I, I was fascinated. Then I read this, 
uh, you know, a lot of stuff about Carol, and and uh, and he uh, uh, he's uh, an interesting man, really, and uh, a fine actor, as you probably can tell. But uh, he he acts the role, of course, uh, which is what he's doing. And a lot of people tend to think that this is the way the guy is, you know, so that, that we tend to confuse. I'm sure he's going to be invited to hard hat conventions all over the world, you know, <laughs> dressly. <laughs> Well, of course, we, we, uh, uh, I, I don't know why I, I uh, you know, decided to do this, this tonight, but uh, I just, uh, uh, yeah, I, I just thought, uh, you know, I, I've, there's been a lot of talk about uh, Carol and, and the, the show and that that he's in, and uh, it's, it's interesting to me because Carol, Carol is, is, uh, is, 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 is almost, I, I, I couldn't imagine a guy as far removed from the character that he plays as Carol is. Uh, although he's funny, I mean Carol has always been funny in his, uh, you know, in his in approach to life. But he's an extremely serious, funny guy, and he's a, he's the kind of guy who whose humor consists of uh, James Joyceian puns, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And so <laughs> I remember, but he he reminded me he at that you know that instant when the when the bartender stood in the doorway and he slammed the door back and the water poured around his feet. Uh, you could just you could just see this look of infinite weariness in uh, in Carol's face. You know, like the, the whole evening was was going down the drain. And so that night, we uh, later that night we went to another. I, I I suppose I shouldn't be telling you these stories, but are <laughs> you are curious about them? So later that night we went to we went to another place and uh, to another a, a, a mutual friend. Who had right around the corner? Who, by the way, who also has a big television series now. And uh, but he was totally the opposite. He came from a very rich family. You know, there's two kinds of actors. There's the there's the poor actor who has risen from the ranks and has finally you know made it as a, as an actor by dint of struggling. And he may be very literate and all, but it's, he's come up a long hard way. And then there's the other kind, you know, who has right from the very start. Uh, has has a fantastic family background, large large amounts of money, and uh, his uh, his father picks up the phone and gets all of William Morris immediately behind him because he owns half of it. You know that kind of stuff. Say so. The the three of us, me and and Carol and his wife, we now are in this other apartment, which was right around the corner. But what a fantastic world of difference! It was a loft. You see, there's two kinds of lofts. There's the Carol O'Connor type, and then there's the other kind, the chic loft. And this loft was incredible. I mean, uh, and uh, and uh, the, the actor, by the way, who you all know, he's uh, he's he he plays roles exactly the opposite of Carol's roles, and is a very elegant type. And and uh, he he likes to pretend that he had this he had this uh, he had this poor actor's loft. You know, they, they have this kind of a thing. And he's a, he's a struggling bohemian actor. And we walked up the steps see, to see him. And in this this loft, he has this elegant party going on. And over in the corner, there is a a uh, his his own jazz group. You know, he's he's hired for the evening, and they're <laughs> they're playing away there. They have twelve thousand dollars worth of elegant uh, uh, pâtés and and uh, various types of uh, caviar. And uh, he he's got the kind of wife you see who has a special room all to herself over in one big corner, tremendous room where she does this this. Uh, Four million dollars worth of equipment to make these ceramic ashtrays, and uh, you know that. And so here's this elegant party swirling around all of us, and then and uh, in comes this actor's mother, who's worth twelve billion dollars, who uh, yeah, oh absolutely, and a beloved figure on Broadway, 
and uh, she refused to ever admit that uh, that this actor was her son because uh, you know that would make her look like uh, somebody's grandmother. And so she hadn't been over there for two years. And so we're in the middle of this whole big swirling thing. And, and the, the the drinks and the caviar and all that is swirling around us. And the Carol and myself were sitting over in the corner there and a few other friends. And finally, uh, after, after uh, you know, our fourth or fifth uh, pound of uh, beluga caviar. See, because we hadn't, didn't have anything really good to eat all night. They, you know, there was water had, so, had soaked into the spaghetti. And so... Uh, we went down to the H and H, and all that was left was uh, was buttered squash, you know, and uh, stuff like that. So now we're eating like mad. See, at this other guy's party, we're eating the <laughs> we're eating the caviar, and drinking the champagne, and and, uh, and, and uh, grabbing whatever cheese. And I and and, and so Carol says, hey, he said, uh, Shep, and I said, yes, Carol. He says, do you think he says, do you think they'd notice if uh, if uh, he said, look at that fantastic slab of Swiss cheese over there. Do you think they'd notice if we stuck it in our coat? And, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, so uh, we, 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 we were in the middle of that scene, and then we left. We left that after about four hours, and the, all the elegant people, these were all the, the great names, and uh, we went walked down the stairs, and uh, this actor calls out to us. He's got this elegant, trained voice. He said, fellas, he said, any time you'd care to come to our little, our little bohemian loft, just drop by. We're certainly glad you fellas dropped by. You know, after all, uh, you know, I want to excuse uh, the way the place is, but, uh, you know, a struggling actor and all that sort of thing, fellas. And the Carol says, yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, yeah, I understand. And uh, Nancy sniffed quietly, and we went out into the swirling noise of, 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 uh, of Times Square. And uh, up above us, these fantastic lights and these signs are all going in, and those tremendous signs is the Bible at last brought to the screen. The Bible. Yes, brought to the screen now at last. The Bible by John Houston. Uh, by God, the Bible by John Houston. Well, that's one way. And I turned to Carol. I said, "The Bible by John Houston." And of course, Carol is a is a is a uh, is a uh, theological scholar from Trinity College. And he says, his face gets a little purple. He says, "My God, that's what's wrong. That's what's wrong with everything." I said, "Easy, Carol. Let's stop by for a, let's stop by for a pina colada here at my favorite pina colada stand at Forty Sixth Street." And so we walked into the pina colada, and I got a couple of pina coladas down him and uh, calmed him down a little bit. And uh, then we, we wandered west, and we wandered west down towards 6th Avenue, you know. And uh, I could hear, you know, the sound of the rising traffic and the roars going all around the air. And behind us was this actor, you know, and his elegant uh, actor's pad in the head. There was nothing but the damp fogginess of the floor of uh, the place with the exploded John. God knows what the future would bring. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I don't often talk about uh, that kind of private life, but you know one of the great things about this city, you can say all you want about New York, and people do say all they want about New York continually. Uh, it seems to be open season on New York, you know. Wherever you go, uh, no matter what kind of a rat hole you're in, what kind of a miserable little town you're in, you know, with the, the soot and the crud drifting down and the cigar butts all around you, sure enough, some idiot is going to say, New York, you live in New York. Oh, I wouldn't live in that hole of New York. I don't know. And so it's open season. But I'll tell you one thing about New York for those of you who 
have got this mythology going. Uh, I, I don't know of any city that is more continually exciting than this city. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really almost a matter of personal choice that uh, if you choose to withdraw from it, that will let you withdraw. If, on the other hand, you, uh, you, 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 you plunge into it, uh, they, the possibilities are almost infinite. And I, I suspect that's the thing that makes this city what it is, is, is always the sense in the air of something fantastic about to happen. I mean, it may be a fantastic disaster. You may get a call, you know, and uh, be, uh, you know, be, uh, who knows, <laughs> be a two-hour Charlie Brown show on the entire network tomorrow morning. But it's, it's always, it's always a, it's a giant wheel that goes around. Now, some people are not gamblers. And I think most people aren't really. I think most people in, are anything but gamblers. They, you know, they play for that soft berth all the time. And New York is not the town for them. But uh, for guys who uh, who are secret mental parachute jumpers, who are <laughs> that's right. This is your town, man. And uh, and I I. Uh, uh, I, I can, you know, I can go on and tell you endless. I can tell you New York, New York stories that just go on endlessly, endlessly, and uh, it's just, it's just a great city for that kind of thing. Nowhere else, you don't feel this at all in in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, there's a lot of showbiz in Los Angeles, but it has a curious, uh, somnolent, sullen air about it. It's hard to pinpoint what exactly it is. Uh, Los Angeles is a joyless city, generally. Uh, whereas New York, for all of its its curious wild nuttiness, is a city that has a, a, a an, inc- an insane sense of humor. It really does have that. And uh, and and everywhere you look, you see you see little glittering you know lights of it. Only only a city like New York would name. Utopia Parkway, Utopia Parkway. That's for a sense of humor. I mean, knowing what Utopia Parkway is like, to call it Utopia Parkway took a real sense of humor. Either that or a complete sense of nuttiness. I can't tell which. So, uh, <laughs> New York, get you out know, New York. And it ain't exactly the way Leonard Bernstein writes about it either. But of course, that's my New York. I suspect his is the Sutton Place New York, which is another kind. New York, New York, you wonderful town. Wouldn't have occurred to me to say that, but uh, it's something else. Uh, it's like looking through the world in a gigantic moss-covered kaleidoscope. And you just keep turning it, and those strange lights and curious forms and shapes keep coming and going, and uh, you never know which way those little bits of colored glass are going to flop. Wonderful, yeah, but wonderful, and it, it's more like awful. Awful in the sense of awe, A-W-E, not awful, not awful rotten, but it's a city, it's in the old use of the term awful. It's, it is a city with awes. And by the way, one thing to remember, nobody ever beats New York. Nobody but nobody. <laughs> yeah, this is W-O-R New York, and uh, let's see, we have John Scott? Yeah. Coming up with the news.